Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. There are few people who know more about buying and selling art at auction than Adam Lindemann. In this podcast recorded at the Core Club with Art News Editor-in-Chief Sarah Douglas, Adam explains how he was able to set auction records as a seller for Lisa Yuskovage, Jean-Michel Basquiat, George Kondo, and Jeff Koons. This is a rare chance to get the inside story on how auctions really work. Um, I'm Sarah Douglas, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Art News Magazine, and I'm here with Adam Lindemann, who probably needs no introduction. Um, I first met Adam when he was, I guess you would say, just a collector, um, although who is ever just a collector? Um, and, uh, and he has an extraordinary collection that ranges from works of contemporary art to um, African objects to more recently, um, maybe what you might consider outsider figures. Um, around the time I wrote him, he, uh, around the time I met him, sorry, he had just written a book called Collecting Contemporary, which he followed up with uh, Collecting Design. And these were um, actually a series of interviews. Um, and I remember looking at it and being very envious because a lot of the people that would talk to Adam would not talk to me as a reporter. So he had great access and uh, yeah. Um, luckily, I got to benefit from some of that access because Adam wrote for me um, when I was at the New York Observer, uh, when it still existed and was good. Um, and uh, so today we're going to talk about uh, um, the auctions, but from a user's perspective. In other words, um, there was you probably read, if you keep up with these things, there were articles um, in the past few days in Bloomberg and also the Wall Street Journal taking the measure of what we're going to see over the coming week and saying, okay, if you look at the estimates, this is down something like 20 25% uh, from last year and, and kind of reading the tea leaves in terms of where's the market? Are we headed into a slow period? And I think we're going to take a very different approach here, um, rather than looking at the overall situation with the auctions and trying to make some kind of prediction about what's happening overall. We're going to look at how one, for lack of a better phrase, sort of works the system, um, mainly as a seller. But I think we can get into the, the buyer aspect a little bit. And we're going to leave an especially maybe longer time than usual uh, for questions. So I want to start out by saying, oh, yes, and I'm going to try to be what I probably failed to be as an editor, which is unobtrusive. I'm going to stay. Hopefully just Adam will drive this. <laughs> so, so I want to start out by um, backing up a little bit and talking about timing when you decide to sell something. Because before we spoke, I looked back at um, New York Times article from May 2016. That's when you sold the record-breaking, at the time, record-breaking Basquiat for $57 million. Um, and what I understood from that article is that the auction houses have been trying to get you to consign this piece for a long time, since shortly after you bought it in 2004. So why was it the right time to sell them? 
Uh, well, anyway, uh, I have an answer for that. I'll think of it while I'm gonna, just going to say, Sarah, thank you for inviting me. And uh, the four years that I wrote uh, at the New York Observer were um, really memorable and a lot of fun. But there was a uh, carousel of different editors that uh, we had for a while. And luckily, they ended with you. And you were by far the best editor I, I had there. <laughs> and you pushed me to... Um, to uh, have the most refined, the, the, the sharpest opinions and, and the best articles. So thank you for that. Um, in terms of timing, you know, I used to, uh, one of my careers was working as a trader on Wall Street, as an arbitrage trader uh, on the desk at Oppenheimer. And um, it was always, I always felt it was one of the best educations that I ever had uh, sitting on a trading desk there. Um, getting in early and, and reading every newspaper. Uh, my job was to read every single newspaper uh, published over and over again the same story to see if any one person had added one piece of information. And this was in print at the time. In right? print. In, paper, <laughs> yeah, in print. And I just loved it. Even to this day, I wake up in the morning, I've got five newspapers, and of course I don't really go through most of them. I just love to see the news. And one of the things I learned was I think that um, unlike what I had been taught as a child growing up, uh, timing isn't everything. Timing is the only thing. Everything is about timing, and I, I don't really believe in anything but timing. Um, and so I, I think in the in the auction market, people somehow in the art world they suspend their belief and they suspend their understanding of the mechanics of a sale. And um, in order for an auction system to work, you know they they have a lot of moving parts and they're juggling, and you have to find the way to put the right piece in the machine at the right time. Uh, there's no magic art expert at the auction house who's gonna make a good result for you. They're not gonna call up that. We know who the buyers are at this point. Like, if you just put your ear to the ground or you talk to any you know, good dealer, they know who's out there. There's not like some, it's very rare for the magic person to come. And so, uh, if you create a scenario where that magic could happen, then it might happen. I think if you just toss your thing in auction and pray, uh, that spray and pray technique is not going to work. Um, in the case of the sale of the Basquiat, I had a painting that um, we loved and uh, Amalia and I loved, my wife and I loved, and it used to sit in front of, uh, of a desk at which he was working many years ago. And uh, when I bought the thing, I was like, this is big, this is amazing. But I didn't really tune into the fact that there was a whole mafia of people against the painting as well. So the painting had belonged to Enrico Navarra, who was a big Basquiat dealer in France, but he wasn't part of the Bruno Bischofberger mafia, which is the great Swiss dealer. And when I say mafia, there are those people who believe that only the Bruno paintings were the good paintings, and those are the ones who deserve more money. And Enrico was more of a wheeler dealer. This was the greatest painting he ever had. Didn't have graffiti on it. It didn't have this. It didn't have that. But it actually was bigger and incredibly expressive. And it was a painting that um, Molly and I fell in love with and loved. It was the cover. It was the front of the... Uh, Musée de la Ville de Paris, when they had the big Basquiat show in Paris, I and mean, they put it right in front because it's a huge painting. But it was a bit tricky to sell it because you needed someone who wanted a big, big statement and who had room for it. it By the way, I would just point out, um, I remember when that came up for auction, 
And I said, boy, that painting looks familiar. And, and I said, I think that's Adam's painting, because I remember I came over to talk about some column or another. And I said, well, I can't really trust my memory. So we looked in your house, was, Adam has an incredible house designed by David Adjay, very unusual. And um, I found that the painting was very prominently displayed. It's not like it was a painting that, that you kept in storage or anything. It was like clearly much loved. Yeah, so it, and uh, so we loved it, and, and it's a great work of art, and of course I still miss it. Um, but um, what happened was there was a bit of a weak season, which is another point. So Christie's, the, the art market, was having a bit of a blip that season, and they didn't have much for sale, nor did uh, Sotheby's, kind of like where we are now. And so there was an opportunity to... Um, come in with a very important work and get the cover lot and get all the advertising, get all the publicity and get all the, the machine working for this work, which if they had Femme, femme d'Alger, they wouldn't have even, you know, dealt with it. You would be in like page number can 20. I, can I interject a really naive question? How did you know that they didn't have great material? So how does one know what they have when they haven't told anyone yet? Um, well, I didn't know exactly what they did or didn't have. That's that's an issue. Is they have all the cards and you don't. But you, I, I went in with certain requirements. Like I wanted this, I wanted that, and you feel it out. You see what you're offered. I would say that had I not been able to get the different elements that I needed, I couldn't have risked the painting. If that makes any sense. Like an asset of that value cannot be just put into the marketplace and good luck. I mean, unless it's a um, it's in a state or death, divorce, and what's the third thing? Disaster or dissolution. Um, uh, unless it's that situation. <laughs> well, there's, there's bankruptcy, there's insolvency. What's the other one, Josh? <laughs> but um, it was a good opportunity. And uh, it was like there was a hole in the market, the market wanted it. And I knew that there was one client out there who already was up for it and we knew who that person was and that person had wanted the painting for a couple of years so with that level struck then it was there was a wild card there was an optionality that someone new could come into the market it wasn't just like thrown out there and good luck and let's spin the wheel okay. it was the same with the hanging heart well i was about to ask about the hanging heart yeah when when i sold the hanging heart in 2007 which then was the world record for a living artist, the world record for Jeff Koons, the world record for everything. Um, it was 23 million. That was a big, you know, that was a huge number at that time. Um, there was someone was out there. There was someone out there who was, you know, looking for that kind of a deal. And so uh, it was possible to sell it at that time. Without that, uh, I don't know, you know, when someone, uh, that's why when, when the cracked egg appeared at Christie's, um, whenever that was, two seasons ago in London, um, it's a B.I. because like, it's just like, there's no one there. It's just, it's all about timing. And everyone wants art when it's going up. Uh, as it sort of crests the value, no one really is all that interested. Suddenly it kind of dries up. And the second it ticks down, suddenly it's like, wow, everyone disappears. So I, I actually want to, hold on, we can get to this. I, I want to ask you about something you, um, 
when you spoke with the Times in, in 2016, you expressed some strong opinions about estimates. So I, I want to talk about estimates because they're always a, an interesting, you know, how are they set? How do the houses do this? Do you set it high and hope for the best? Do you set it low? So, um, so the Times says, you know, in, in Lindemann's view, estimates placed on works by auction houses are too often mistaken for actual value when they are simply the result of deals between auction houses and sellers. The prices represent how much the auction house is willing to commit to a seller and what that seller is willing to accept. And then this is a direct quote. You have to appreciate the views of the consigner and the agenda of the auction house. People think the estimate represents the value and often it doesn't. Can you elaborate on that and maybe give us some examples? Uh, yeah, well, I'm going I'm to now speak in favor of the auction house. It's going to sound very positive, but I'm in favor of low estimates. I think low estimates are good estimates. If you need to put a high estimate on it, you shouldn't be selling it at auction. I mean, because the, um, the, the, um, the effect of a BI is there, there's two things in the market, I think, that are really significant that people don't really understand. First of all, buying something privately is worth more than buying it at auction. Anything you can buy in the private market is worth 20% more than what it would be at auction. Why? Because you can turn it around. If I bought it privately um, from my wife's gallery, for example, or from anyone's gallery, I can turn around and I can put it at Sotheby's next week. Or if, if my situation changes, I can turn it around and I can sell it. If I bought, bought it at auction, I'm going to stick with this thing for years. Everyone knows what it is, what I paid, where it came from, and blah, blah, blah. So the value of something bought privately, I think there's a premium. It's, it's, it's worth more because you can turn it around, because there's liquidity, the, the possible liquidity options you have looking forward. Whereas if you bought it at auction, you better prepare to, like, you know, buckle up and own it for quite a long time. So, um, so... Uh, Wait, what was the question? Estimates. Oh, the estimates. So uh, in terms of the estimate, when you put it at auction, it's like a one-way trip in my mind. Like when I put it at auction, there's no backsies. I am not taking it back. There's just no way. Because um, for me, um, I hate illiquidity. You know, I, to me, it's claustrophobic. It's like, it's like being locked in a tight, I mean, it just, it drives me crazy. And the art world is inherently illiquid. So I'm kind of fighting the, 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 the need to own something long term. I mean, the great collectors have owned this for this and this and this. And yeah, it's very nice to hear someone who's owned something for generations or an entire lifetime. It's a beautiful story, but it's not my story. I like to be able to be free to move, to change. And the idea that I'll be locked in. So once I put it at auction and everyone sees it and everybody knows it, it's a one way trip. So. With a low estimate, you know you're going to sell. If you get lucky, you'll get a good price. If you get really lucky and your timing was right, you'll hit the world record. I mean, I made the world record for George Kondo, Lisa Yuskavage, Jeff Koons, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Damien Hurt. I mean, there's like a laundry list of records that I set at that time, at that time. And, you know, no one gives you a little blue ribbon as a collector for making the world record for George Kondo. But frankly, inside, like, you know, we know that, like, okay, now it was a mistake. It made a million seven. Now that same Kondo's worth three and a half. Shame on me. But at that time, that was the world record. And once I put it there, it's just not coming back. Because if I get it back, what am I going to do with it? 
I have to sell it at a deep discount. I've got to sit on it for five years. It's like, uh. So I think that you have to put the right thing in at the right time, take the low estimate, and that's a wink to get more players in. I mean, the auction people will tell you that, but it's actually true. So I think, you know, when you talk about liquidity, I mean, this is maybe a slightly different issue, but I remember um, when I was covering the, the auctions as a reporter back in 2005, and remember, you know, Phillips was selling things that were, you know, a few years old or whatever, you know, things coming back for sale, and everyone was like, oh, this is terrible, you know, and now you look and the first lot in the Christie sale is a Rashid Johnson that was made last year, uh, bought from Hauser & Worth. Um, what, what do you think about that that shift from a sort of um, um, a, a sort of uh, a lot of criticism for, I guess, what, what would derogatively be called flipping, and now an increasing acceptance of it? Mm. Uh, well, I remember when the um, when I sold the Hanging Heart, I became like the world champion flipper. And um, and every, lots of people like, oh, that's terrible. He's flipping. He's flipping. Because you had bought it when two thousand four, right? Oh. Or was it more recent? No, it was two thousand four. Oh seven. Mm -hmm. I bought it from. Um, uh, I bought it from my wife who was working at Kagosian in uh, three four years before. So I bought it in two thousand and three or four. But I didn't actually buy it. I, I did one of these uh, contracts, and they had um, two and a half years to produce the piece. Um, I put down 20 percent, and, uh, and then it was delivered after like two and a half years to that place in Germany. Um, I think that uh, flipping is, uh, is wrong when it's uh, specifically against the intent of the gallery. And if there's a sort of gentleman's agreement that you're not going to buy something for a dollar and try to flip it for two dollars, because the art world is just a bunch of gentlemen's agreements and handshakes. I mean, I've never been sued. I've never sued anyone. It's just against my basic method is like, if you're going to sue me or I have to sue you, I'm not in the art world. The art world is a bunch of handshakes in my view. But when you buy something for a dollar and it's suddenly worth $20, how can you tell someone they can't sell it? I mean, you know, if it's a dollar to a dollar fifty or whatever, you know, but once these astronomical numbers can be achieved, I, I think all rules are off. But I do think that the flipping market is not there anymore. It used to be 15 years ago, 10 years ago, when we were on the sort of front of the list to buy primary, you could always buy it at a discount. Today, and it's been for a while, and I don't really understand it, embarrassingly. I don't get it. The primary market is most often at a premium to what the auction market is. You go into a gallery, you buy that new whatever it is, and it's very expensive. If you try to put it in the auction, you'll lose 40 or 50%. It's no different from that Ferrari dealership that's right on the corner here. It's like you go in there, you get that Ferrari at $300,000. The day it hits the pavement, it's worth one seventy-five. And I think that's today's market. Now, if you've got the perfect Rashid Johnson, like that painting is just the one that everybody wants, I'm sure it's worth a premium. But I would argue for a living artist like that, it's not great. So just to, I, I know this is well well trodden territory, but I might as well ask since we're in front of an audience. Um, of course, in 2007, the winning bidder on The Hanging Heart was exactly the person you bought it from, 
Gagosian, though he was bidding for for someone for a client. Um, was there an, ever any bad blood between you about the flipping of that piece? Well, it's 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 uh, it's really ironic the whole thing because um, it was um, I think that sort of in terms of publicly the idea was that I had done the wrong thing by selling it through Sotheby's instead of going back to Gagosian Gallery. And so the dealer was um, sort of publicly upset about it in a very um, uh, aggressive way, I would say, on a personal level, because these are people that I've known for you know, a large part of my life. But the reality is, is that work, the price of that work, allowed both Jeff Koons and Gagosian Gallery to sell hundreds of millions of dollars of Jeff Koons sculptures. Before I sold that thing for $24 million or whatever it was, the price of a Jeff Koons was $3 million bucks. So as soon as that sale hit the tape, the prices tripled. And now there's lawsuits about people who overpaid. Exactly, and people who aren't getting their pieces on time. And I love Jeff's work, and I would say Jeff and I are friendly. You know, I'm, I'm, I help him if I can, help him in some way. I have great respect and fascination for his work. Uh, last summer I did a show of a, of a Chicago-based outsider, insider called Joseph Yoakum, an African-American artist. And actually Jeff had told me to do the show about a year and a half ago. So we have a great dialogue, which is meaningful to me. Um, and I love the work. Um, but uh, so uh, and I also support his charity, uh, the ICMEC, the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But um, the, the truth is, that thing's selling for that crazy amount of money. That allowed them to raise the price on everything for a long It changed time. the Coons market. Um, I want to, before we open up for questions, just return again to our user's perspective um, and talk a little bit about reserves and guarantees. You know, so let's say you're a consigner coming to auction. How how do you negotiate on those things? Um, well, the guarantee thing is also a, a funny thing because people kind of think, oh, there's a magical guarantee. But the guarantee came from one of the buyers. So the problem with the guarantee is, let's say you have something that's worth, you know, a dollar, and you'll only give it to the auction house if they come up with the dollar. Well, they're going to underwrite it, but then they're going to call the top three people in the market. And those three people have already seen the piece, and they've already been offered the guarantee, and maybe they didn't get the guarantee. So the guarantee only works if there's a new player going to come in. If, the, if there's no new player, you'd be better off without the guarantee. So it's kind of a risky proposition. On the one hand, I would say if the guarantee is at a good level, you take it. But uh, normally speaking, if you really have... Uh, the right thing at the right time, you don't need the guarantee. So I think like in these upcoming sales, what, at least what's been written in the press is, I think one of the sales is like 60% guarantees, um, is that, you know, in, in an uncertain market, people want these mechanisms. Well, it's tough for the auction houses because if mm -hmm. they don't have put up the guarantees, they don't have the material. But like that Ellsworth Kelly at Christie's, I mean, that's a beautiful painting, but um, that's like, that's strong money. So they must know that there's someone out there who wants something like that. Or if you look at the electric chair they have, um, that was just sold not too long ago. So here it's back on the market. Um, so I, I think the auction houses have been squeezed by this guarantee thing. 
but uh, they also have sold their guarantees to the same people over and over again. Um, they got like a little group of people who buy a portfolio of guarantees. And um, are you one of those people? I have done guarantees, but it's become very popular. It's very competitive to get to underwrite those deals. It's interesting because it sort of also has made the price. It's made the material get better, but it made the prices go up. And um, I, I think it's a tricky. It's a tricky thing. Uh, recently, uh, some of those guarantees went bad in the last season. And so the people who write the guarantees have posted collateral, which is other art, and then the auction house gets to sell the other art. So I wonder at what point in time there can be a, uh, it, it's, like, it's like gambling in the casino. It's like you win until you lose. Right. Um, reserves. I think low. The lower the reserve, the better. I mean, when I put something at auction, they tell me, let's say the reserve's uh, you know, 80 to 120. I'm like, make it 60 to 80. Uh, if I know it's going to sell. If I know it's not going to sell, I don't put it in. Uh, better to sell privately in many instances. This, this auction sort of fantasy is really, um, it, 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 it's, it's kind of naive to think that anything you put at auction will magically find a buyer if in a gallery you couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. So with, with any given piece, if after the sale people say, you know, it didn't sell because the reserve was too high, why would a consignor want a high reserve? Do they just want the assurance that it is worth that? Because uh, they're living the fantasy. They, they're, they're living the fantasy that it's worth what they paid or more than they paid. I mean, the thing is a work of art is an illiquid asset that uh, doesn't generate any value, right? It's not growing. It's not, you can't charge rent. No one's living in it. It's an inanimate. A work of art is worth about as much as this glass of water. I mean, unless someone else is willing to buy it. And that electric chair actually is a good example because I think when it sold several years ago, it sold for something like 10 million. And actually the estimate's right around that. So they're not, they're not necessarily saying this thing's going to go up in value. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the market is, uh, generally speaking, uh, in, let's say, a, a flat period. But, of course, there are things that are always going up and there are other things that are soft. I mean, the Warhol market in general is not especially uh, buoyant. I'm curious to see why that electric chair is back on the market. But um, that being said, it's a great painting. Those large electric chairs are incredibly rare. If there's someone out there who's a new collector to Warhol, I, I love that thing. So I am going to open this up to questions. Um, and feel free to, uh, you don't have to ask about uh, selling things at auction. And I'm sure not everyone in this room is, uh, is planning to do that, maybe in the day sales. Anyhow, I will open it up to questions. You know, you're talking a lot about the big trophy things, and that's a little separate category. You know, if you have a thinner market, which you may be, but you believe there's like one guy out there, you maybe consign at a high estimate thinking he's going to pay that price. And if I go low and get it on the one bid, might as well go up to that point that's close to, to the threshold. Would you, I mean, that's how I sometimes think of my clients in the case where there's, there's a, a big broad market where you want to go low and get 50 people in or but if there's probably just one guy, would you have, would you just not sell, or would you put it in at a high estimate and just figure he's going to go or she to that point? 
whales are going to want it. They're going to pay that price. Might as well, it's one bid. Might as well go start at the, at the final bid. I think that makes sense. I mean, if, you, if you're willing to risk getting it back, um, if your client is in a financially strong position or they don't really need the liquidity or want or care and they're willing to take that chance and if you can get the auction house to put the high estimate on it. But generally speaking, and you're right, if there's only one bidder and there's not two bidders coming, then if you put a low estimate on it, they might get it for much less than it's worth. So I guess it's a gamble. It's like you're deciding are there two bidders or one bidder? You're right. If there's one bidder, you got to go for the high estimate or risk taking it back. Um, but if you can get two bidders, I think low estimates always going to be better. Um, then you get into the reason for the guarantee. The reason for the guarantee is that that one, if that is a, like a professional bidder or a gallery or whatever, or art investor, they're going to push that thing. And um, it's a tricky thing. You have to decide how many people are going to uh, going to be there for your piece. What do you think about? Uh the auction houses doing private sales? Um, I think that uh, that's a good question. Um, they have a lot of information that galleries don't have. They have all the lists of all the bidders on every lot. They have the lists of Warhols, the lists on, you know, whatever, every Coons bidder, every bidder on anything. So they, they have a lot more information than, than, than we do as collectors. Uh, than galleries do as dealers. So they benefit from that. The problem is that they're in a real spray and pray uh, mode, the, the auction houses are. And uh, that was one of the Wall Street um, uh, cliches. We'd call that spray and pray. Like the guy doesn't really know what he's doing, so he just like... <laughs> and, um, and the other horrible uh, cliche I'll throw out there is if you throw enough at the wall some of it will stick. Uh, and so um, I think that, you know, private sales and auction houses, why not? I mean, if I were running the auction house, I'd be trying to bring in private sales all the time. But for the consigner, um, I think once you've given it to the auction house for private sale, you have to assume that you've just triple burned the thing. I mean, that's like scorched earth. It, it, because you're saying the, the auction house, the private sale is going to be less targeted than a gallery might be? They have everyone on their database, so now everyone in the world's been offered this thing. Every buyer, every art consultant, art dealer, speculator. I mean, it's like it's the, the Wild West. As opposed to what you were saying before about private sales, this is almost tantamount to putting it up at auction. As, think, far, as, the, as far as the insider market is concerned. I think it's like, you know, showing it to the world, but, um, but, uh, but, but giving it time to sell. I mean, very different from if you were to give it to a to a private dealer or to a gallery and and target where it's going, uh, which often, you know, the um, the exclusivity of the work of art is also part of its value, meaning people haven't seen it. People haven't been offered it. It's only shown to certain people and not these people. I mean, if you know that there's only two or three people in the world who could buy this thing, you might as well show it to those two or three people. So what do you think accounts for? I, I think it was Sotheby's. Um, their private sales went up dramatically. I can't remember if it was um, if that was last year or this year, but they did go up dramatically. What accounts for people wanting to sell privately through the auction houses? I think there's a lot of material that's been at auction in the last five years that has nowhere to go. 
You know, there's a lot of stuff that you bought that thing three years ago. You can't put it back at auction, so you give it back then for private sales. And uh, they brought in a management team that's very aggressive and is going to use that database. I mean, I think the auction houses have a tremendous amount of data that they never really use. They're kind of these old-fashioned, you know, uh, organizations that run kind of like universities or something with, like, each department has its dean and then all the little minions underneath running around, but nothing's on the computer. I mean, in a perfect world, I'd punch up that thing, spot painting, and I'd get every friggin' bidder on a spot painting. I would blow that thing out 100% if you gave me one. Not saying that the price would be good, but with all the information they have, it makes sense they can sell. So I know uh, we're not making predictions up here, but do you have any thoughts, having watched the auction houses for many, many years on the acquisition of Sotheby's and how, and how that might play out and how that might affect things? I've been thinking about it, and uh, it's so interesting that this man who I've never met bought Sotheby's and why he bought Sotheby's. Um, I was uh, just saying that I think the, the, the sort of the, the Nobel Art Peace Prize goes to Tad Smith because he's a guy who came from running Madison Square Garden, from working for the Dolans at Cablevision. He knew very little about the art world, and every art expert would like roll their eyes and go like, Oh, he doesn't know a Rothko from a Jackson Pollock. Like, and in the end, did it matter? I mean, he sold the company, so he gets the triple crown. I mean, it's amazing that he was able to sell the company to the same person who bought his last company, Cablevision, Drahi. I mean, it's phenomenal. And uh, now, I have some questions, which is, why did Drahi pay the premium he paid? I don't understand. I mean, normally when I worked on Wall Street, we pay 20%. Like that's the first bid is the minimum was 20% up. I think he paid 50% over the where the stock was trading, first of all. Second of all, where's he going? What's his game plan? We don't really know. Um, but we I do think he- some staff changes, maybe. I do think he has a master plan. Uh, what they say is that he's a cost cutter. So he's basically going to probably go Fine much more digital. Um, probably reduce his overhead by as much as possible. And I do think that in the end, an asset like Sotheby's should have been incredibly valuable to somebody like eBay or incredibly valuable to Alibaba, or there's these like, massive tech companies. They could just buy this thing like a blip. Um, and in the same way that, um, that uh, Art News was acquired and Art in America and uh, you have Jay Penske rolling up all these big names, Rolling Stone, and, and uh, they're all going to go into some sort of digital platform. I think Sotheby's fits beautifully into a larger digital environment. So I want to ask you one last question, which is, um, so you, you also have a gallery. We didn't talk about that. Um, uh, and recently, you've actually been doing some art fairs. Right? You've done a couple of Art Basels. Um, and I was just curious, we're talking about the auction houses. I remember in, I think it was 2014, um, Mark Spiegler sent out an email saying, you know, to all, to all the galleries saying, these auction house people, you know, coming in here and going into booths and, and trying to talk to people like, this isn't, this isn't okay, you know, we're going to stop this from happening. That was before you were doing fairs. But is that something you would be bothered by? Because you're, you're saying, you know, you seem like, you wouldn't be bothered by that, like anything goes, sort of. But do you feel differently now that you're an art dealer and you have a booth and you don't want the auction house people walking around doing business? What, what do you mean exactly? 
Well, I mean, you know, he, he was upset that, you know, someone's going to come in and, and you know, at, say, point to a painting and say, well, you know, I can get you that for the, you know, basically, so the dealers aren't going to be able to do business as well because you've got these auction house specialists going around into the booths and doing their thing. So Spiegler was like, you know, we don't want this. Um, is that something that would bother you or no? Uh, well, <laughs> um, the art fair experience has been uh, uh, very interesting for me, and I've done uh, three FIACs, three Freeze Masters, I think. This is my third Miami Basel. Mm -hmm. um, I have yet to do Basel, hopefully this summer. Um, it's an awkward moment for the uh, art gallery because you're just basically sitting there uh, there's no there's no smoke and mirrors. You're literally like sitting in a chair as people walk by and uh, You're in a kind of a vulnerable situation on the one hand. I've always thought that and that it's, these it's unpleasant Yeah, so I've, I've voluntarily put myself through this unpleasant experience um, <laughs> Much more pleasant to sit there and watch my lot go, you know up to seven digits on the on the screen the way I've uh, found a new way to think about it is that um, the art fair is basically advertising. And the idea that these are all shops that have to sell, sell, sell. I mean... Well, I've, some of them really do have to sell. <laughs> they do have to sell, but it's mostly advertising. I mean, mostly what you're doing is you, you, you need to take advantage of whoever that flow of traffic is and sort of create some image. Uh, and use it as a message. Now, the problem is it's expensive advertising because you're paying the rent, you're paying the shipping, you're paying the travel, you're paying the employees, you're paying the DDDDD. So, of course, you want something to sell to help defray the costs. But um, I think once you open the booth, it's like there's no rules. Mm -hmm. I, I don't agree with these people trying to control markets. I'm generally, you know, free market person. It's like you hang it on the wall, anybody can come. And frankly, if an auction house expert comes with their client and, and buys my piece at the right price, I'm very happy. I want to ask one last question. Let's just switch for a second to the buyer's side. I'm sure you've looked at all the catalogs. I don't know, day sales, I don't know. Do you think there's any um, opportunities in this market if you're, if you're someone looking to buy right now? There's, there's always an opportunity auction. I mean, there's just, by definition, there's not going to be a buyer for every... Um, for every piece, so um, I think that uh, you kind of have to, the, the truth of the matter is you have to be there mm -hmm. to, to wait for it. And um, in a sale like this sale, this season, they're probably gonna try to lower the reserves days before. I mean, they're gonna call up every freaking consigner and say, we're not there, we're not there, and lower the reserves. So there's gonna be uh, good opportunities on some things, but I think they're opportunities for patient money. They're not going to be uh, quick flipping opportunities. So, if you were to buy uh, anything this season, uh, I think you you you're, you're going to hold it. I mean, you know, look at the Hulk at uh, at Phillips, for example. Uh, we were talking about Jeff Koons inevitably. Well, I mean, those Hulks. I think the top tick on those Hulks was like eleven million dollars or something. And um, I haven't seen it yet, but I think it's Hulk with friends. Um, Hulk with Friends is a good piece. Like, that's not one of the ones that you're going to say that's, you know, whether you like the Hulks or you don't like the Hulks, there's a hierarchy. I think it's around six or something, or five and a half. To, that's where it's sold for primary. So if the buyer has to now take a hit on that, 
um, that is technically an opportunity because now you're actually buying it less than primary. But once again, I think that all these things, especially in the art world, they go in trends and the trend is your friend. The trend is your friend on the way up and on the way down. So, I mean, this sounds really dumb what I'm gonna say, but it's, it's true. If the trend is up, the likelihood is it that the price will continue to go up. As soon as the trend turns, whenever that, whenever that point is, as soon as it goes down, it's likely to keep going down for a while. So we are going to adjourn. Thank you for uh, coming out so early on a Monday morning. I hope it was entertaining and uh, enlightening. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 